once heard a man say that you can categorize all sermons you will ever hear in church into one of five categories, and they are pray more, serve more, read more, give more, and share more. And as a person who has spoken long term to one church, that has always been sort of a challenge to me because sometimes I, I look back on a few months and I think, is that what people have heard? Just that there are certain things they ought to be doing more of. It, it, those topics summarize some very basic facts about the Christian life. And there are responsibilities that we need to be engaged in. But there's something about that mentality that anything you will ever hear in church can be fall into those five categories that needs to be vigorously resisted by people like me who speak regularly and by people like you who sit and listen to what is said. The mentality that the Christian life can be reduced to a list of responsibilities tends to breed the belief that the Christian faith is all about a certain way of behaving. It's sort of the idea that, well, you might have learned to behave this way in your family and in society and school, but Christian faith tells you you need to behave a different way, and the whole function of being around other Christians is to move from this kind of behavior to this kind of behavior. It, it, it feeds the idea that the Christian message is Jesus has done a lot for us, and what have you done for him? You should be actively involved in doing things that he wants you to do. And that develops the basic idea that we have the independent power and the responsibility to do what God asks us to do. And all that pastors are there for, and Bible study leaders, and teachers, and, and books, and the Bible itself, all it's there for really is to tell us what those things are that we ought to do and to motivate us to get busy and do those things. Now, I believe that th those are misguided ideas. In fact, they're completely wrong. Um, they take a half-truth, and that half-truth is responsibility. But they build it up as though that's all there is to Christian faith, is the responsibility to do what God wants. And what it produces in churches that emphasize that is it produces tired, frustrated Christians who are also demanding that other people keep doing the things that they should be doing and be as active as they are. Now, I, I really think that to show us that that idea is misguided, Jesus gave this illustration, and this is, is a central illustration in the Bible. It's drawn from the Old Testament, but it's developed by Jesus here, and so much comes out of the shoots that go in different directions from this very simple illustration. It, it helps us to see the Christian life from a different perspective, and that's what I want to think about together this morning, a perspective that's... Um, both challenging and freeing to us if we listen to it. So what I'd like to do this morning is just do two things with this passage. I'd like to um, explore the illustration itself. What is it that Jesus was saying? What is the illustration? And to unpack its meaning, which Jesus does in part for us and leaves other parts to be explored by ourselves. So let's first explore the meaning, break down the illustration and understand it. When Jesus was gathered in the upper room with 11 of his disciples, Judas having left, after the Last Supper was celebrated, we find Jesus teaching his disciples, and so this is a key point in his teaching there. And he uses a simple allegory that has three parts to it. 
And based on those three things, he applies it then and allows us to apply it. The allegory speaks of a vine, a vine dresser or gardener who cares for the vine, and of the branches that grow from the vine. Those are the three elements of the simple allegory, and everything flows out of it. In the illustration, he makes it clear that the vine represents himself, Jesus Christ. The vine dresser represents God the Father, and the branches represent individual believers. Now, in the illustration, the first thing he points out is that when the gardener deals with the vineyard, he, he first has to remove unproductive parts of it. We think of that as pruning a fruit tree or a grapevine or grape arbor. And so what he does is he, first of all, removes all the dead and unproductive wood. Now, through a grape season, some branches and parts die, and they fall off, and they get stuck in the, the twine you know, of, of the grapevine, and they fall on the ground. And those things have to be taken away. All of the dead wood that is stuck in there and is left after the previous season. And in addition, every spring, there are um, shoots that grow out of a vine. This is true of all uh, fruit-bearing kinds of bushes and trees. I, it happened that I grew up in a place where we had a grape arbor that was about 15 feet long, one long uh, section of grape plants, uh, vines. And we had five fruit trees, three apple trees, a pear tree, and a peach tree, and my father took care of them very carefully, and we got a lot of fruit from them every year. It was kind of his hobby. It was his hobby that his children had to participate in. <laughs> One of the things that happens is that uh, fruit trees are very vigorous when they're mature and when they're watered well and so forth, and they produce, uh, in the spring, they produce life that's very rapidly growing. So if you think of an apple tree where it's most obvious, an apple tree shoots up branches that go like three feet up in a very brief period of time so that when early spring comes and the leaves start to come out, an apple tree looks like a teenager with a bad haircut and too much mousse, you know? It's sticking straight up. And what you have to do is you have to cut all of the branches off that are going straight up because they're unproductive branches. In some areas, they're called suckers. And the same thing is true in a grapevine, only it's not quite as evident, that uh, there's a lot of growth in the spring, and it shoots straight up, but it is unproductive. So what the farmer has to do is he has to both take out the unproductive dead wood, but he also has to take off, cut off, the unproductive growth that is not going to bear fruit. Now, it's stated quite explicitly in the passage that um, the farmer's intention is to bear fruit. And so he mentions that there's this unproductive wood that has to be removed for the point of getting to the fact that he even prunes the living branches. So look at verse 2, and this is just his illustration. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes explicitly, so that it might bear more fruit. In other words, the farmer's intention is to produce fruit, and he removes everything that uh, won't produce fruit. When I was a child, I participated in these events under great parental duress. <laughs> so I kind of had to look on the internet to make sure that some of what I remember doing in childhood was accurate, and I, I looked up pruning grapevines. I just Googled it, and got this article that was all about pruning grapevines, and it, it had a series of points. The first point was this. Don't be afraid to cut. 
When you're finished, you will have removed about 90% of the foliage. 90%. What it means is that God, in this case, even with the fruitful branches, knows that there are, is life that is springing out of it that isn't fruit-producing life. And, and these need to be stripped off as well so that the branches will bear more fruit. Now, that's the illustration. I just want to make two simple points from it that aren't explicitly made, but they're obvious to the illustration when you stop to think about it. The first point that is made by using this illustration of a vine with the branches is that there is an organic connection between the vine and the branch, right? The branch literally grows out of the vine. It's not stuck onto the vine or glued on or anything like that. It grows out so that the branch is a part of the vine and draws from its life. Literally, the life of the vine is in the branch, and the branch draws the source of whatever energy it has to produce fruit from the vine. And that's an important point. It's not explicitly made, but it's right there, and we're meant to draw it out. And the other thing is that the stated aim of the farmer is fruitfulness. Now, it mentions these dead branches in verse 2, and that raises a theological question for us that's sticky. You know what? Who are these dead branches? Who are the unproductive branches that have to be removed? But I have to tell you, that's such a simple question. I'm going to let Paul answer it next week. I do want you to note the dead branches are mentioned twice in the passage, and they're mentioned only tangentially to the main point. They are important, but they're only mentioned the first time in verse 2 in order to get to the pruning, where he says, but even those that do produce fruit, he prunes so that they may be more fruitful. In other words, the gardener does the things that he does. He cleans and he prunes, and the other work that's not mentioned, watering and feeding and weeding. He does all of those things for one stated purpose, to produce fruit. That is the farmer's intention. Now that's really the entirety of the illustration. It's very simple. A vine branch is a gardener. God, the gardener does what he does in order to produce fruit. But I want to unpack the meaning of that and the application to us with three things, three ideas that flow out of this. And here's the first one. The first one is that Jesus obviously means for us to take note of the fact that there is a an organic connection between the vine and the branches, and in the same way there is an organic connection between Jesus and believers. I remember when I first came to faith in Christ when I was 19, I kind of assumed, because I'd been going to Bible studies and reading the Bible, and, and I wanted to find out about God, I, I, I kind of assumed when I first understood the gospel that I was in the right place at the right time that I had heard this and it made sense to me and I applied it to my life. But later I began to realize much more happened than I experienced that moment that it's like became clear to me. It was not an emotional experience particularly. It, it was an intellectual understanding. Oh, it's all tied up in Jesus and what he did. Jesus died for my sins. I look to him and I'm forgiven. I assumed that that was just something that I had experienced. But what I found out afterwards is that much more went on at that point, more than I could ever conceive of. And one of the things is what theologians call union with Christ. In fact, this is the most important thing. At that moment that I trusted in Christ, according to the teaching of the Bible, which I didn't understand at that point, God so joined me to Jesus Christ 
united me in union with him so that everything that is true of him now belongs to me. The forgiveness that he purchased on the cross flows into me in my experience. The relationship with God that I had not had before, the certainty of God's open arms to receive me, it all came to me because I was joined to God's beloved son. That's called union with Christ. Most theologians get that from the teachings of the Apostle Paul, particularly in the book of Romans chapter 6 and in Ephesians chapter 1 and places like that. But you need to understand that idea, and it comes naturally. It wasn't something Paul made up. It came right out of the illustration Jesus used in the upper room. The life of the vine is in the branch. There's an organic connection between the two. And in the same way, when a person comes to faith in Christ, what true salvation really involves is that we are joined to Christ in a, in, in a connection that's like a vine and a branch. In fact, uh, notice that according to this passage, that connection is initiated by Jesus. In the same way that the vine sends out the shoot that becomes the branch, the vine initiates the life of the fruit-bearing branch in exactly the same way Jesus, we are told, initiates the life that flows into a believer. Again, a new believer assumes that he was in the right place at the right time. She heard the gospel message. Something inside of her responded, and that's true, humanly speaking, but the Bible does not hide. In fact, it makes prominent the fact that behind that is the mystery of God's eternal election. That in eternity past, God the Father was the one who set this in motion for the individual person. And that in the distant past, God the Son died on the cross to procure salvation. And in the lifetime of a Christian, God so works by the Holy Spirit to apply that to the person's life. And that's why Jesus said in the Gospel of John, chapter 6, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And again in chapter 6, no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Now, this is important because it's important to understand the life of the vine initiates the life of the branch and holds it so that this connection is two-sided. You see, we tend to think of the branches because obviously we represent the branches. And Jesus says, abide in me, and things like that that we'll come to. But I want you to note that twice Jesus says something that he adds some words that we don't expect to be there. Look at verse 4. Abide in me, and I in you. And again, verse 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him. In both cases, he adds this reciprocal point that he abides in us. Now, why did he add that point? Well, it's because there is an organic connection between the vine and the branches. It's an organic connection initiated by the vine in such a way that the vine itself holds the branch. The source of our security is not in ourselves and in our fruitfulness. The source of our security is in the vine who gives us life to begin with. Again, the life of the vine flows into the branch. And the branch, in order to bear fruit, draws the nutrients out of the vine in order to have the power to do that. We might say literally, the vine is in the branch and the branch is in the vine. They're not just stuck together. So first, the meaning of Jesus' illustration is to show us 
that like a vine and branches, there is an organic connection between ourselves, if we are believers, and Jesus Christ. A connection that he himself has initiated and that gives us a sense of being held and secured. You might say, I never understood that. I thought Christianity was about doing things for Jesus, living a Christian life, obeying Jesus' commands. And I come to church in order to learn those things, and that's all there is to it. Well, please understand, obeying the commands of Jesus is important. There are a lot of things the Bible says about that, but you can't obey the commands if you don't have the capacity to receive and understand them. You can't bear fruit unless you're connected to the vine from which you have a source of life. And the Bible speaks of eternal life being the gift of God through Jesus Christ. When a person trusts in Christ and in Christ alone, what happens inside of us is that God places his life that the Bible calls eternal life. And eternal life is not simply the fact of living forever. That's only a result. Eternal life is God's quality of life placed inside of us by his spirit. And it gives to us now a new connection to God, one of vine and branches, an organic connection in which we have resident within us the power to grasp what it means to live for him, to seek to do that. Now, that's the first point. There's an organic connection. And the second one is this. It flows from that, but it's made explicit by Jesus. Because there's this organic connection between Jesus and believers, we have no independent power to do anything of eternal significance. In the words of the passage, we have no independent power to produce fruit. The only power we have that will allow us to produce anything in terms of character or behavior or impact on other people that has eternal value can only be produced by drawing upon a power that is outside of ourselves to which we are connected. That's the point of verse 5. Note at the end of verse 5, he adds those words, apart from me, you can do nothing. You know, the branch can't do anything unless connected to the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me, he says. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, if you think about it, a grapevine simply has to stay connected. The branch simply has to stay connected to the vine. And the life of the vine flows into the branch, and, and it draws nourishment and strength and produces grapes and clusters of grapes. But broken off from the vine, it will simply dry up and it will not produce fruit because it has no independent power, no innate ability inside of itself, separated from the source, to produce fruit. It's a simple illustration. I don't mean to draw it out uh, too long, but it's important to understand. Now, you do have a responsibility in the Christian life, a series of responsibilities, and we'll think about that in a minute, but the thing you need to note is that your responsibility is not the responsibility independently to produce fruit. The whole point of the Christian life is not to do things for God. Um, this should do away with all notions that so many people have that living the Christian life is doing things for God, going to meetings, making decisions, uh, speaking to other people about Christ, teaching Sunday school classes. That's the, the end all and be all of the Christian life, and that's our chief responsibility in life. It should dash to the ground every idea that that's what the Christian faith is all about. Yes, that's an important activity of the Christian life, but that's not the one Jesus focuses on. There's no idea in the New Testament 
All I need to know is what God wants me to do. If you would just tell me what to do, pastor, Bible study leader, if you would just give me the list of things I need to do, I could do those things. New Testament doesn't have that, that uh, perspective at all. You have no independent power to do anything of eternal significance, no matter how much you know about it. So the believer is organically connected to Christ. And, secondly, the believer has no independent power to do anything of real significance, eternal significance, to expand God's purposes in this world. But we do have a responsibility, and so Jesus underlines a responsibility, and this is the third point. This is the third thing we want to gather, and this one Jesus himself makes an explicit application to us, and it's found when he says in verse 4, Abide in me, and I in you. That's the chief command in the passage. Abide in me. Verse 4, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. That's, that's his point. Now, we have to note at this point that there's a problem with the illustration. And this is not a problem... Uh, with Jesus and his making a point, it's a problem with all illustrations. All allegorical type illustrations where you compare something physical to something spiritual are going to break down at some point. Most of them are going to break down at this point. Now let me explain. You have a vine and you have branches. There's an organic connection. That's clear. The branch can't do anything on its own unless it draws from the vine. That's clear from the illustration. But in that illustration, if Jesus didn't go on and make an explicit point, you would simply have to gather that what the branch does, it does naturally. After all, a branch doesn't have any choice. It's not a person. That's where illustrations break down. As someone said, illustrations aren't meant to walk on all fours. You know, not everything holds true. And the one that usually doesn't hold true is that you're using something physical that isn't a person and doesn't have intellect, it doesn't think, it doesn't feel, it doesn't choose a branch, it doesn't have any of those things. If you cut it off because you decide you don't want it, it doesn't care. If it produces five grapes one year and doesn't even notice that its neighbor produced five clusters of grapes, it doesn't feel jealous, it doesn't think about its responsibility. And so Jesus makes an explicit application, one that's not made by the illustration. He says, abide in me. Now, this puts into our responsibility something that the branch doesn't have to be told. The horticulturist, you know, the, the person cleaning out the vineyard and pruning it for the spring, when he's all done, he doesn't say to the branches, now, you stay right there. <laughs> Don't you go anywhere. But Jesus says to us, abide in me. We have a choice. And Jesus spells it out explicitly. Now, what does that mean, abide in me? Well, essentially, it means to maintain our daily personal fellowship with Christ. What we have by virtue of being joined to him by faith, this being united to God, we're to maintain that and grow that sense of closeness to him and fellowship with him. We can do that in the assurance that he is abiding in fellowship with us. And as we draw near to him, he also is drawing near to us. Remember, 
This is a reciprocal thing. The vine is in the branch. The branch is in the vine, just as Jesus says. But we also do it in order to assure that we experience his fellowship. In practical terms, you might ask, well, what does it mean to abide in Christ? What do you do in order to abide in Christ? Well, let me just note, two things are mentioned in the passage. It, it tells us that prayer is an aspect of abiding, verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and you know, we've done for you. So effective prayer is one aspect of what it means to abide in Christ. It also goes on and says that uh, obedience to God's word is an important aspect of abiding. So he says, verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. And the next verse, verse 11, says it's not only prayer and the word, but it's uh, those things done in the uh, an atmosphere, an attitude of joyful trust. It's not just doing those things, but he goes on and ends with these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. So you might think that there are two activities primarily that the passage itself gives to us, the word and prayer. Those are what people who have studied the Bible have often called the means of grace, the means by which God, that God has given to us by which we can maintain our fellowship with him are the word of God and prayer. In fact, I would say everything else that you would do in the Christian life would somehow be connected with those two experiences. They are the most basic way, and they become the way in which we abide in Christ. So this directive, abide in me, is inviting us to bring our hearts to God in worship through his word and through prayer, his word in which... Uh, he speaks to us in prayer in which we speak to him. And through that, in an atmosphere of trust, to seek to maintain our fellowship with him, our enjoyment with him, to build our connection with him that we might be closer to him. Now, this one is so important that I don't want to leave it there. Abide in me. It's so important that it needs some careful thought when we think about applying it. So think about it this way. Suppose we didn't have this illustration of the Bible, the vine and the branches. Well, if we didn't have this illustration, which pictures an organic connection and, and life flowing from one to the other, from the vine to the branch and producing fruit, if we didn't have that, we might gain the impression that the Christian life is all about doing things for God. It's about bearing fruit. That should be our focus. This is sometimes called activism. Many people... Many churches have an activist view of the Christian faith, and, and they say, listen, he's done a lot for us. We need to do things for him. And so let's, as a church, start a new ministry every month, a new thing that we can do to impact the community, to help people, and we'll invite people to be a part of that. And pretty soon you've got a, a whole bunch of things going on, and you're constantly trying to get people to be there and to do things. Well... That would make ministry the sole focus. Like, that's the whole purpose we exist. That would make doing things for God the sole point of why are you a Christian? Well, so you can serve God. You can expand his kingdom. And while those things are all important, the Bible, using this illustration, kind of keeps us from an activist perspective. After all, Jesus didn't say, having given the vine, the branches, the gardener, he didn't say, now bear fruit. In fact, Fruit-bearing is left up to God in the illustration. He said, abide in me. What he's saying is, your focus 
is primarily on connection to me, closeness with me. My focus is primarily on bearing fruit through you. So activism is on one side, very common. Churches grow big sometimes by being very active and having a lot of things to do. But they tend to burn out a lot of people over time. I remember uh, we had a neighbor lived in the house right next to the, the driveway. Uh, good people who lived there for years. I think they moved about five years ago. And I've met with all of the neighbors at some point in the last 30 years, some of them a couple of times, when we've built buildings or things where I want them to know here's what's going to be going on in the property and so forth. And I've gotten to know them a little bit. This was a great couple. They were an older couple. And at the end of the conversation of which I was, I think we were building, and I wanted to let them know, I, it, it seemed natural for me to say to them, you know, I, we'd love to have you come sometime on a Sunday morning. And, uh, come to church and you know, people could meet you, you could meet the leaders so we'd know who you are and that kind of thing. And, and I'll never forget, they were so nice. And, and he kind of looked at me and he said, I did that once. I was involved in a church. My children were small and got real involved. In fact, I got so involved that I had to move in order to get away from it. And I felt sorry for him because a lot of people have that experience. That's activist Christianity. Now, let's think about this. If on the other side, and this is the other extreme, Jesus had given this illustration, the vine and the branches, but he didn't add the explicit command, abide in me. He didn't make that point. Then you might gather from the illustration that the point is there's this organic connection, and fruit is naturally, automatically born through the branch. So all you need to do as a Christian is to get close to Jesus and rest in him. I don't know if you've ever heard that, but there is a form of Christianity, it's often called quietism, which goes to that extreme and they say, if you're doing things for God and you're tired, you're doing something wrong. He never means for us to be tired. He means for us just to get close to him. All you need to do is get close to him and rest in him. And if you're getting close to him and resting in him, he'll do the rest through you. Well, kind of, almost, but not quite. They often use an illustration like this. They say the Christian life uh, might be illustrated by a glove. You have a work glove in your garage, and, and you go out to work in the garden. You take the glove and you put it on your hand. Now, the glove is a, a good instrument that will protect you and allow you to do things you couldn't do with your bare hands. But the glove, it, it, it doesn't do the work, right? You use the glove. You work through the glove, and all the glove needs to do is to be available. You put the glove on, you go out and do the work. And when it's all over, people don't say, I, can you show me your glove? Because I want to thank it you know, for such a beautiful garden. No, they, they thank you for doing it. There's a problem with that illustration. It's the same problem with the vine and the branches. It's the reason Jesus made this one specific application, abide in me. The problem is the glove is not a person. It's a thing. The vine is not a person. It's organic, and that is very helpful to us. It produces life naturally. That's very helpful to us. But it will never picture for us our responsibility. So Jesus says explicitly, abide in me and I in you. Now what I'm saying is that um, the point of Jesus' illustration is it's meant to balance us between these two extremes that people easily go to. Between activistic Christianity, activism, do things for God and he'll, he'll like you and you'll be a good Christian. On the other hand, against quietism that says, no, don't do things. Just get close to Jesus. Spend time with him. Read his word. 
love on Jesus, that's all you need to do, and God will do the rest, you don't need to worry about it. It's meant to balance us between those two things and tell us that there is a responsibility. And the responsibility, according to Jesus' words, is to abide in him. That is, we need to engage in those activities that allow us to keep close to him and allow us to love him and learn from him, but we need to do it so that he will bear fruit through us. Now, I want to underline again two important things that come out of this passage. One is, it's the Father's purpose to bear fruit. Remember verse 2? Every branch, Jesus says, every branch in me that does bear fruit, he, the Father, prunes so that it will be more fruitful. It will bear more fruit. The Father's purpose is to bear fruit. The Bible does not conceive of fruitless Christians. God works in them and towards them in order to produce fruit. That's his purpose. And it's also Jesus's work to produce fruit. It's his responsibility. Verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you in order that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain. It's Jesus' purpose to produce fruitful and faithful Christians. It's the Father's purpose. It's Jesus' function to do that. And, and so we can rely on that. However, if our responsibility is to abide in Christ, and we know that that's what God is seeking to do, then fruit becomes something we ought to think about. Again, it's not our responsibility, but it's what we ought to long for and pray for and desire that God would do in and through us. We should be workers together with God, to use the image of the Apostle Paul. We join in the work that he's already doing inside of us by seeking to do those things that he wants to do in and through us, but we do it primarily by abiding in Christ. So, so how do we do that? Well, on one hand, we should make it our chief responsibility as Christians our chief responsibility to seek to maintain our fellowship with Jesus Christ. Through his word and prayer every day, we ought to be seeking to draw near to him and to know him and learn more about him and, and to worship him. But that's not all we do. While we're seeking to maintain our closeness to Jesus, we also ought to seek to be fruitful. After all, that's God's purpose through us. And, and as we seek to be fruitful in our character, in the way we relate to people, and the things that we do, we, we know that's God's purpose for us, but it's not something we have to do to prove ourselves worthy to God. In fact, we long to be more fruitful. That ought to be true of Christian people, but we don't measure our value by our fruitfulness. We measure our value by drawing close to Christ and hearing him tell us of his love for us and his care for us and the way he nourishes us with all that we need and makes us acceptable to the Father at every moment that we might come into his presence and worship him in spirit and in truth. So we don't measure our value by our fruitfulness, but also we encourage other people to get close to Jesus. We encourage them to walk with him, to cultivate their relationship with him, that, that Christianity is not just showing up at meetings and doing things for God, but it's cultivating a heart love for Savior. And while we do this, we encourage them to serve. But we don't have to encourage them to serve out of a demandingness that says, look how much I'm doing for Jesus. 
why aren't you doing as much as I am? Why didn't you show up last week at whatever the meeting was, or the annual meeting? Yeah, let's talk about that. <laughs> you know, Jesus gave to us this illustration. It, I Really, it is so central. It's so basic because it's simple, and yet it carries so much meaning. It, it pictures an organic relationship that reminds us we are connected to Christ if we're believers. This is not a hobby that we happen to take up while other people took up another one. This is, for Christian people, a calling in which we have been called effectively by the Spirit to belong to Christ, and he has initiated life into us. And, and not only is it an organic connection, but that means we have no independent power. It's not just something we receive at a point in time, and now we're saved, and that's all there is to it. Let's not worry about it until we get to heaven. We, we have no independent power as we go through life to do anything of value for God, to live a life that will have eternal impact rather than just temporary. We have no independent power to do that unless we draw upon the vine. And then it tells us, because Jesus was explicit about this, that our responsibility is to abide in him, that is to maintain our closeness to him through the word and prayer that we, we do alone, we do it in groups with other people. We engage in that on a Sunday morning like this. And in those activities to seek to be close to God, to ask him to work in and through us. God grant that we are that kind of people in church. Let's pray. Again, as we come before you, Father, we thank you that you have given to us the very words of an eyewitness of Jesus. The John who wrote these words was the same disciple who the Gospel of John tells us leaned back at the Lord's Supper as they reclined on the floor and his head was on Jesus' breast, which means he sat at the right hand of the Son of God at the Last Supper. And he spoke to him personal words and received personal comfort and assurance, but he's recorded for us these words, the Apostle John, these words that he heard from the lips of Jesus I am the vine, you are the branches. We pray, Father, that you would seek to make these things a deep part of our experience. You know, sometimes I think about 168 hours every week and what we, all of us, myself included, fill our time with, how much television we watch or time we spend playing video games or whatever, how much we have to work and other responsibilities we have in life, and in reality, how little input we have. Part of that's just the nature of life. We have many responsibilities, and, and so we can't be in church all the time. We can't listen to the Bible all the time, read the Bible all the time. We're not even called to do that. But sometimes I think how hopeless it is that a person like me with my own fallible failures and uncertainties and all of that, who is never going to teach a completely accurately and with real authority, how often how little time I have to impact people, and yet we thank you that this is your word. You work through fallible instruments. Thank you that you are capable of taking this word, even this illustration of the vine and the branches, and uh, penetrating the hard hearts of people who sit and listen to it and germinate inside of them a desire to live for you and to follow you. And I pray that you would do that in our church. And those of us who lead and in every person who's involved, that you would penetrate our hearts with the word of God in such a way 
that we would find developing inside of us a living hunger that is almost palpable to know you and to listen to you. And that when we hear of the vine and the branches, we wouldn't just think, oh, that was a good illustration. We would think, I am connected to Jesus with a union that is so secure and so eternal that his very life from the throne of God flows into me, forgives my sins, cleanses me, and enables me to thirst for God and to seek God. We pray that you would do that inside of us, each one, by the power of your Holy Spirit, for the soul glory of the Lord Jesus Christ.